What's happening? Welcome to the Wong Notes Podcast. I am your host, Corey Wong. Today's episode is featuring Kevin Bacon and Michael Bacon. The Bacon Brothers. I'll tell you what. When I logged into my Zoom that day and I saw Kevin Bacon show up on the screen, I was going, whoa, how many times have I seen this guy on the big screen? Now he's on my laptop screen saying, what's up, Corey? Nice to e-meet you. And Michael Bacon laying down drones and tones, the Emmy Award winning film and TV composer himself. That's pretty fun. Almost equally as fun as texting with George Benson. That episode's coming later in the seasons. Don't miss it. So smash that subscribe button to be reminded of when Benson is here. We got plenty of other current and future legends on the show this season, so you're not going to want to miss it. Now, today's episode is pretty unique because we don't have cats on here that are known as guitar players, but they have equal or more insight for us to learn from if we look at it from the right angle. Kevin Bacon, we all know him. Tremors. Footloose, Apollo 13, X-Men, the list goes on. This guy's got more creds than Amex. His background in music is not one that's very educated. He's a self-taught dude. Michael Bacon, on the other hand, film composer, TV composer, he comes from a completely different background, much more schooled in his approach. We get into that sort of thing, and especially for us as guitar players, sometimes what we do is we get a little bit tunnel vision. We get blinded by our technique or our schooling or something that we really want to pull off, and he's got some nice reminders in there on sometimes when to just let that go and do the thing, not to always overthink everything. Okay, are you ready? Everybody cut, everybody cut. Everybody cut whatever you're doing the next 45 minutes and focus on this interview because there's some gold. Hit it! All right, folks. You're listening to a guitar podcast. What does that mean? I'm going to talk a little bit about guitar gear, okay? Now, this podcast is presented by Fender and Premier Guitar Magazine. So, today we're talking about that Fender Player Series. Fender is stoked to welcome the Duo Sonic Mustang and Mustang Bass to the Player Series family. Shorter scale necks, cool asymmetrical shape, classic Fender colors. It's a win-win-win. I personally have a Mustang PJ Bass out of the Player Series, and I love it. That one, it's my personal favorite out of the basses there because I can get the J sound with the bridge pickup, and I can get more of the P sound with the neck pickup, and the middle is a nice little blend. As far as the guitars go, the Duo Sonic, the Mustang, cool designs. Obviously everybody, come on, we're guitar players. You're familiar with the Stratocaster, you're familiar with the Telecaster, but don't let your research stop there. Designed for authentic Fender tone with a bit of an edge, Alnico single coils, split coil and humbucking pickups. You get your foot in the past while looking to the future of guitar tone. Now, what I would suggest, try to go to a Fender dealer, see if you can get your hands on one of these necks, because the modern C-shape is really cool. Fits really nice in my hand. If you can't get to a Fender dealer, check out the website. If you have any other Fender guitar that you can reference, there's a really cool diagram where you can see the shapes of all the Fender necks and the styles of necks. This one, really comfortable, very playable. I love the modern C-shape neck. Now, I talked about the Mustang, Mustang bass, Duo Sonic, but yes, they've got the Telecaster. They've got the Stratocaster with the kind of specifications across the player series. So go check it out. 
If you're curious, hit Fender.com. You can see a whole array of things there. Check out their YouTube page. Dig it. Michael and Kevin, thank you guys so much for joining us. It's really a treat to have you guys on. We are in the digital presence of legends right now. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. You guys have nine albums out together as the Bacon Brothers, ranging from folk, soul, rock, Americana, kind of all over the, well, not all over the place, but several different things. You've played at the Grand Ole Opry. You've played at Carnegie Hall. This is not just a side gig for you guys. This is something you guys are taking seriously. Yeah, I mean, I think that both of us uh, tend to take pretty much everything pretty seriously, especially when it comes to um, creating, you know, content. Um, you know, we, we, we'd like to have a good time. We enjoy playing. But from the first time we kind of went out and asked people to show up and pay m- money to hear our songs and, and hear us sing and, and play. We knew that it was something that you, you, you have to have respect for uh, the audience and, and work hard at it. Yeah. And that's just something that we've always done with, with pretty much anything that we do. Michael, where are you at with that? How do you approach this differently than writing for TV or film? Oh, it's, as far as that side, um, if you just look at the compositional aspect, when you're writing for film and television shows, you have to have a spigot. And when you sit down to work, you got to be able to turn it off on to get all your work done. And then you may turn it off. Yeah. If you don't have that, forget it. And somehow something was instilled in me because of the kind of household that Kevin and I grew up that I have that. Yeah. Um, that doesn't, I'm not saying that the water that's coming out there is works of genius, but I always have that. So when it comes to the band, the band is a songwriting band. The relationship between songwriting and serious composing or art composing or film composing is pretty unrelated. When you come up with a song, you need to somehow find that place where the lyrics and the music intertwine in a, in a perfect way. And when I, I definitely use the word perfect because... Nobody knows what perfect is. You can't go, okay, tonight I'm, today I'm going to be perfect. So you are always um, trying to get to that point. But the problem is that for the kind of songwriters that Kevin and I are, we tend to do our best songwriting when we are looking into ourselves. Mm-hmm. And looking into yourselves to grab song lyrics and stuff, it's not necessarily this gigantic cave of inspiration. In the 25 years we've been doing this, we've kind of decided, what is it we're good at? And let's get really good at being that, whatever that is. And I think if you look at the trajectory of the records from 25 years ago to today, the songwriting is getting better. It's getting more concise. The arrangements are more interesting. The vocals are better. So that's kind of my my read on the band. When I listen to your guys' music, that's something that does stand out as part of your unique thing because you guys have a certain perspective. It's, It's both of your perspectives on life which manifest themselves in these songs. Songs like Bigger Than a Song, conceptual things like in songs talking about Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours concept or uh, a song to Mama Pop Culture or things like that, or a song like Bitter Man, uh, where, where it's, it speaks to specific messages. As far as the songwriting thing, I want to touch on some of those songs specifically. I chose those from your catalog because I have questions about them. But in a song like you're talking about, Michael, there's a certain way that you have to craft it 
and you have call it three and a half minutes to tell an entire story. This question is directed towards Kevin. Kevin, when you've been asked to portray certain roles in a movie, when you're asked to portray certain roles in a show, you have 90 minutes to tell the story of that character. You have all this time to tell a story of a a specific person or a specific thing that's happening. How do you distill a story that is maybe 90 minutes to now in songwriting doing it in three and a half? Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the skill, right? That's the challenge of pop music, rock music, soul music, uh, you know, the songwriting kind of thing. And I think that with like anything else, if you know, you have a certain amount of, of um, paint in your on your palette or in your toolbox, depending on what you happen to be doing. And as you point out, if you're playing a character and you're the lead in the in the in the film or in the TV show, you may have you know multiple years to develop what that character is over time. Yeah. If you have one scene in a film and you only have one scene, which I've done countless times, then you got to figure out how to make people get that guy in that one scene, and the writer has to do that as well. Yeah. Um, to sit down, you know, with three or four minutes. And and try to um, you know create something that is both musically appealing, but also lyrically makes people kind of get it in that amount of time. Really, is a challenge. I mean, I feel like my answer to doing that in, in my own writing is, as Michael will attest to, is that the, a lot of the first songs that I wrote, I would just cram as many lyrics as I could into one song, just like just sure. just rattle them off as fast as possible. <laughs> And so to me, I think part of the challenge is of growing as a songwriter is to, is to, you know, see if you can do it with, with less and how people are able to do that. You know, the great songwriters, I, I, it's, 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 it's a mystery and it's elusive and it's something that I admire uh, completely. How about you, Michael, regarding painting a picture with music throughout the course of a show or throughout the course of a film. When you're writing music for picture, you have time to make specific themes for certain characters, specific sonic palettes for certain types of scenery. Does that affect the way that you songwrite? Do do you bring that into your production as far as Bacon Brothers music? Yeah, it really does. And sometimes to a fault, I think. I think, you know, touching off what Kevin said about the simplicity, um, it's very hard for me to ever look at anything in, in a non-film scoring way. So, for instance, we wrote we wrote mm. some songs with these great guys in Nashville. Came up with a song, um, and it was called The Storm Before the Calm. And they did a demo down there, a very kind of cool, laid-back, funky country demo. And I looked at it as, well, it's about a storm, and if you're scoring a film and there's a storm there, there's going to be certain storm-like musical metaphors that are going to go with it. So when I did my, my take on it, that's kind of where I took it. I took the tonality of the song, of the song and made it more dissonant. Um, I had sort of sure. an interlude. I'm not saying I did, you know, Debussy or anything like that, but it tend, I tend to see songs more like that. And um, that's not necessarily a good thing because most people that are doing, that have had enormous success in the music business really don't travel in those areas. And uh, it's more something, as Kevin said, it's something very, very basic. And I think that my musical training um, 
is not necessarily an asset. And one of the things you have to find out what you're good at. And when I do bring in that part, I hope that that, that enhances the songwriting thing, but I'm not so sure that's that big an asset. For instance, I'll give you an example is Kevin wrote this absolutely gorgeous song called She Is a Heart. And we recorded it with uh, just piano. And then I wrote a string chart and I wrote a musical kind of introduction and it pretty much just piano strings of voice. And in that sense, when I listen back to what I wrote, what, 15 years ago, I think it really makes the song something different than it would have been if I didn't have those kind of skills in orchestration and composition. So um, sure. I always have to kind of make sure I'm not put, in fact, you mentioned this, uh, I don't want to jump ahead, but you mentioned the song, um, Mama Pop Culture. Uh, the song, for those of you who haven't heard it, is basically somebody who, who since I was 12, uh, which is 50 or 60 years by now, always trying to find something that was going to be accepted by the general public or the public domain, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. And so it's basically saying, please, mom, I'll do anything for you. You know, give me this little lightning strike that very few people get. But since I've been doing this so long, give me a break. Okay. And um, <laughs> it's a pretty lyric. And yeah. it, and I knew that if I, I wrote the lyric and I knew that if I wrote the song, all of my concept of beauty and sensitivity and uh, melody and would, it would just ruin it. So I sent it to Kevin, <laughs> just the lyric, because I love the lyric. And I didn't hear from him for, I don't know, closer a year or something like that. And sure enough, he sent it back to me, a perk, I mean, just, Badass, punk, obnoxious, just funky, edgy guitar stuff, uh, and and it was perfect. So in that case, I'm smart enough to know when I've done something that if I take it any farther, it's going to go. And uh, so I'm very proud of that song. We we cut it in Philly with a bunch of you know young guys who you know this was like falling off a bus with uh, you know for them. So. Um, that was a that was a really fun experience, and we don't collaborate that much. So it was nice that we have a song that we really truly did write together. That's cool. You can definitely feel that in that song and in that recording, analyzing the song itself and then the recording of it. I think that's that's pretty cool. You talk about you you just mentioned something not collaborating a ton, but the project itself is a collaboration. What is better about collaboration rather than just doing something yourself? And what's easier for you to do by yourself? I think I would say that what can be good about collaboration is that it adds a sort of a, a, a kind of attention to the music that might not otherwise be there because you have two kind of different points of view musically. There's a lot of stuff that we're very, very similar on, but a lot of those things, for instance, that Michael mentioned having come to songwriting as a, as a composer, like never occur to me. I, you know, I rarely sure. start out and think about, you know, I don't even really think about harmony if I'm starting out to write write something. I don't really think about um, counterpoint for sure. I don't even know what it means. Um, I don't think, you know, I just don't think in those kinds of terms, but I have other things that I think about. So I think that um, just having another point of view, um, a musical point of view, I mean, even on Mama Pop Culture, you know, we, we were not just Mike sent me the lyric. Um, I made the demo and, you know, built the, 
the tracks and you know music and put the whatever just kind of built the built the song but then we sent it away and we really had nothing uh to do with it and it's pretty close to the demo there's a lot of stuff that's pretty a lot of stuff that's very close to in fact i think he even used some of the same stems and stuff like that yeah but then there's sections that like literally the producer said there's going to be a few surprises so you know hold on to your hat like that kind of um strings string interlude and stuff like that that didn't i didn't write that and he he didn't write that either and all of a sudden there it is and you go wow well that's cool as shit i mean you know um so you could come come to that from the point of view of what are you doing look what they've done to my song ma you know you can't take the you can't add a an interlude with a string section you know what the hell are you thinking but sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't so that's that's a, a long way of saying collaboration can be a it can be it can be challenging sometimes um especially if you have a really strong point of view about the way something should sound but at the other hand uh it can also be magic all right, this is a fun conversation, but I'm going to stop us for a second and give you a little reminder. Check that shop.fender.com. I actually happen to be on the website right now. I'm checking out this new player series. I'm looking at this Duo Sonic because it is a nice, shorter scale for anybody who might have smaller hands or even for kids if they're trying to find a guitar that's not quite full scale. Check this thing out, all right? Let's get back to it. I want to get back to one of the songs. The song Bitter Man. Now, you guys both have been in a couple different industries for a long time. You guys have been doing the thing with a lot of success. Anybody who's in music or in film and television in general, it's like an Emmy? Sick! That's amazing. You guys have awards. There's so much notoriety on both of your Wikipedias. They're both very impressive. And you guys have both been able to do it for a lot of years. Not everybody's been able to do what you guys have done at any level, let alone for decades. My question about Bitter Man and the subject of bitterness in general and being jaded, that sort of thing, being in an industry where there is a lot of ego, where there is a lot of competition, can you speak to me a little bit about Bitter Man and just that subject of bitterness and being jaded in general in the industry. I don't remember that song. <laughs> Can you hum a few bars now? Uh, yeah, I I wrote that song about exactly kind of what you're talking about. Um, it's probably about, I think probably about 10 years old or something like that. But Yeah, um, I think it was off the 2010 record. Which one? I think it was off the record in 2010. Yeah, 2010, right. White Knuckles. White Knuckles, yeah. You know, I... I I feel like you bring up a really good point. There's a certain, at a certain point in your life, certainly at, at my age, you come multiple times to, um, a, uh, a fork in the road and you can choose the road of bitterness or you can choose the road of gratitude. Mm. And it's sometimes, tough um to it's it's not an easy it's not an easy choice because uh you know people on the outside of course let's take me i'll just speak for myself 
Sure. On the outside, you look at me and everything is like absolutely couldn't be better for so many reasons. And yet, you know, you, you think to yourself, well, this guy just got this or this guy just got that. I mean, you've mentioned Emmys a couple of times. I don't have an Emmy. I have no, you know, so if, so I could go, well, let's see, how come I never got an Emmy? How come I never got an Oscar nomination? And how come this person did, or how come this box office is better? Or how come this review talks about this, this person as a, as a, uh, as the world's greatest actor. And, and, you know, I get a shit review the day before, or, or how come, you know, you know, no one buys our records or we don't can't get a song on the radio or whatever it is. There's a million reasons, million ways that you can start to just feel bitter and shitty about yourself. If you're a creative person, you know, in, in any kind of, in any kind of field and probably in the, in the world, although I've never really done anything else, um, you know, there's competition. And if you get into that, um, you know, my, my wife has this, uh, phrase which is compare despair. You know, you get into the into the you know thing of comparing yourself to somebody else, and and it just you know you just creates despair. So that's really what the song is about. You know, it's like, am I is the is my are my feelings about or my feelings from an ego standpoint, but also from a lot of the darkness that and the pain and the suffering that you see in the world, is is that going to turn me into a bitter man? Am I going to, you know, take that, take that road of bitterness or am I going to try to hold on to some semblance or some attitude that has to do with gratitude and looking at the things that I have and looking at the things that I've done and, and, um, and finding a, uh, you know, just a more simple pleasure in that. I love that. Uh, sorry on my information. I, I had information that you had an Emmy. My bad. No, it's okay. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but you do have you do have a star on the Hollywood uh, Walk of Fame. Yeah, Correct me I if I'm wrong there. Star, I got that star right on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Well, actually, my star and my wife's star are right next to each other. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, they were nice and they were nice enough to put us right next to each other. That's amazing. You guys have worked with outside producers. Kevin, like you said, I mean, obviously the way that you're talking, you you do some producing yourself. You're using the terminology, stems, all that sort of stuff. You know what the stuff is. Michael, obviously you're producing, you're writing, you've got stuff of your own. Who worked on the track, She's Easy? Who who produced that track? Uh, well, we produced the uh, we produced the actual final record together. Uh, again, that was one that's very, very close to the demo that I that I produced. It was pretty, the, the song was pretty close, except for one huge, huge thing, which was the horn part, which I had not envisioned um, at all. And uh, that was, a, I, I sent Michael the demo, if I remember correctly. And then it came back with this wacky horn part. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. And, you know, I wanted to write something that was, um, I just wanted to write something fun, you know, kind of the, yeah. kind of the opposite of bitter man, you know? Um, yeah. and I, I was thinking about the easy on my eyes idea and, uh, or she's easy on my eyes. And there was a, um, I remember that in Ojai, California, they had this thing that they call the pink moment where, at, a, at, at sunset, people kind of sit on mountains and, and wait for the sun to set. And right as at the moment at which the sun sets, the sky turns pink and they call it the pink moment. 
And mm-hmm. um, so it was kind of like, I don't know, so there was something about that that I thought was kind of cool. And, yeah. I love dissecting recordings and listening for things that are familiar to me. I know these loops <laughs> because I have used these loops in my own songs. Uh-oh. I know that you use Logic Pro now because it's African Ghost Kit 03. Uh-huh. That is the loop that you used. And I thought that was amazing. As soon as I heard that, after the second chorus, after the second chorus of that song, that those rhythms and that horn thing comes in exactly like you're talking about. I heard that loop and I'm like, that's the loop that I used on starting line on my own record. Uh-oh. And that's that exact loop is what I used when I produced a record for this band, Ripe. There's a song called Little Lighter, and I tuck that little loop in the background because it's got such a good energy. Yeah. And it's so palatable. It's so it can it can there's so many of those loops in Logic or or Garage Band even that are so usable. And it's really fun to be able to use those. So when I heard that song, I know whoever put that track together, I was like, that cat uses logic like that. Loop busted. Well, you know, the amazing thing about that, when you really think about it, is you look at the amount of loops that are just come with logic or come with GarageBand. And the fact that, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of them. The fact that we would both find that yeah. and want to use it <laughs> is, you know, it's a, it's a, in a weird kind of way, it sort of speaks to the fact that it's a pretty cool loop. I mean, just that, that two people would hear it and say, oh, I like that. Exactly. And that we would both have the audacity to put it out on our records. <laughs> uh, oh, I could, I could do better. I'm going to make my own. It's like, no, these guys kind of nailed it. So why don't I just use it? Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, we, listen, it's cool. I, I totally, I, I, I totally believe in that. It's, it's a, um, there's a lot of great stuff there and it's, it's both yeah. used. So, I have to jump in uh, with some loop nerd information. Now, in that loop, there was a low kind of a melodic kind of tom-tom sound. Yeah. We tuned that, and it goes with the harmony. I love that. Yeah. Now we're talking. Now we're in the nitty-gritty. So when you hear that, it's going to boom, boom, boom. Okay, so that's one thing. The other thing is um, getting back to my comments about what I bring counterpoint, for instance, when I first did the the horn part, I had a contrapuntal line. For those of you who may not be familiar with counterpoint, it's way we think of harmony as chord, chord, chord. It's really not. It's four moving lines that were dictated by um, the church, the early Christian church. I don't want to go into it. I'll be here five hours anyway. So the horn line in in, in counterpoint, you on the strong beats, the one and the three you go to a dissonance and then you resolve it on the second beat, the dissonance on the sure. third beat resolved with four. That's essentially, it's kind of simplest. So I did that the first time and it was really cool, but I also did that, that goofy um, horn part, which ended up in the record and played by, I have to talk about our keyboard player, accordion player played saxophone, uh, alto sax, tenor sax, that's quite the union double. I have some individual questions for each of you that I just want to kind of kind of go down because you guys, like you said, you both have, and, and we've talked, but you guys both have different experiences and different uh, pieces of wisdom that you can share from your own life. Michael, I want to start with you. I think some people are confused by music for picture. Clearly, you know a lot about that. Clearly, you've you've got the accolades and that sort of thing. 
there's a lot of people that are budding guitar players, producers, trying to get into the music for TV and film thing. And a lot of people that are first trying to get into the industry of it and then also trying to get into the craft of it. I'm wondering if you can give a few tips. If you were starting right now, what are some of the steps you would take to break into the industry side of it? And then also just some general through your experience, what are a few things that people always need to be paying attention to? Something that that budding producers that are that are starting to do just the craft of it. What are some of the the, the core principles that you don't see respected as much in inexperienced writers? Hey, Corey, I love the fact that you used the word craft. And the first thing I say to my students, film scoring is not an art. The film is an art, but you are a craftsman. Mm-hmm. You are part of a team. And I've had some really brilliant students that if I were really doing due diligence as a professor, I would have sat them down and said, look, man, you're a great composer or woman, but you're not going to, you won't make it Mm. because you don't want to collaborate with people. You don't, you don't have that feeling of you can learn from these people who know know nothing about music, which is what film scoring is about. Not what you bring to it. It's what you learn from the people you work with. So that's the first thing. It's a craft on it, not an art. The second thing I would say, case in point, loops, sounds. When you get a, when you can get, everybody can get a computer now. You don't even need anything, really, a computer. And then you go and you get a library and you get Logic Pro and you get the loops and you get all this stuff, LPs, whatever, um, you know, F, F, Fruit Loops, FL Studio, all this stuff. And it's incredible, but everybody has it. So if you need to establish what is different about you than everybody else. And if you go to that on a consistent everyday basis, and you know, you happen to get there, Kevin happened to get there with this one thing, it's probably more coincidental than anything else. But if you're going every day uh, with, an, with 808 sounds for your productions and um, relying on, well, even Hollywood strings, when you push that button and this and Hollywood string goes like that, it's beautiful. But yeah. everybody in the world, when they push that button, is going to hear that, as opposed to my way of looking at it is, well, do Hollywood strings, but then overdub solo violin on top of it and mix it in gingerly, and that will now become an event in music that has never been heard in the past and never will be, never will be replicated in exactly the same way. So really quick story. I had a, a brilliant student who was basically a piano player, a freelance piano player in New York and Broadway and, and all kinds of stuff. And I I said, well, what about, he went to Juilliard and I said, well, what did you do at Juilliard? He said, well, I, I, do, I graduated on um, performance on the contrabass. I said, wait a minute, why, why are you doing all your scores on the contrabass? Nobody plays the bass that well. How many people graduated from Juilliard being able to play the bass that well? And he, some reason, he was off in the corner, dusty, out of commission, not interested. And that's a really good example of, instead of being a keyboard guy and doing samples and all the other stuff, he could have done his scores, a lot of the basis on it. On it. You can do so many things. Yeah. Like I'm a cellist. Every score I do has cello on it because it's something I love to yeah. do. And it's also got guitars. And yeah, I'm a guitar guy. So I think that's the second thing is what is it about you that is unique and go 100 miles an hour towards that and get really good at being that unique person. Uh, as far as the other parts about it, being a craft, there are certain inalienable techniques, which I call secret weapons, that every film composer uses 
every film composer has and always will. For instance, a pedal tone. <laughs> Obviously, you don't want to really listen to that, but in the context of film, that might be just the thing. So that's what I'm saying. There are a lot of things you do in film that are craft things that work 100% of the time, always will, but you don't, they're not really stuff you want to listen to because what you're trying to do as a film composer is make the music disappear in most cases mm. and go into the psychological aspects of how the audience can start to ignore what you're doing and get sucked into the film without knowing that's happening. So those are the three things. Come study with me and I'll tell you all the secrets. I love that. <laughs> Kevin, I have a question for you. You're known as someone who's got so much charisma on camera. So many of your characters that you portray, there's a lovability about them. Even when you're an X-Men and you're Sebastian Shaw and you're the villain, there's something charming. There's something about it that's very inviting. Obviously, that is a skill that takes overt talent, but so much subtlety and nuance. Transferring that from stage and screen as an actor Moving that over to the performance side as a musician, do you have anything, any techniques, any just specific things that you think about or that you notice in general that can make somebody, I guess it, for a lack of better terms, more likable or more charming or something that something that draws a viewer and a listener to you visually? Well, I guess I'd say that um, one of the interesting things about um, playing music sharing songs is that it's always a performance, but it's not quite as much of a character as the characters that I play. You know, the person that I am on stage is a little bit closer to me than, than the characters. So yeah. that's kind of interesting in and of itself. Um, that doesn't apply to all, all singers, you know, Alice Cooper, you know, is a character, right. Um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, kiss or whatever, but, I do think that our approach is to be a little bit more our, uh, ourselves. Um, in terms of singing, I it's elusive. Um, and one thing that I, I two two small things. One is that a few years ago we were talking to a singing teacher, or I was heard something from a singing teacher who said, "Why are you closing your eyes all the time when you're when you're singing that note? You know, why 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 are you always going to the closed eyes?" And I started to think about it, and I said, "I don't really know. I mean, I don't act with my eyes closed. You know, I don't do interviews with my eyes closed. So why why would I sing? Uh, you know, with my eyes closed?" And I started to really think about singing, um, and not necessarily looking at people directly in the audience, but at least just keeping my eyes open and seeing what that did. And I think that that kind of helped. And the other thing is that for me, if I play a scene, you know, if you, if you do a scene in a movie, you do multiple, multiple takes sometimes and multiple, multiple setups on, on each scene. So there's a wide one, there's a tight one, there's a super tight one, there's another turn, you turn around, you know, you, you may be playing that same, same scene, you know, 40, 50, hundred times in the course of the day. And you're saying, could be saying the same lines, you know, pass the salt, pass the salt, pass the salt, pass the salt. And every time you do it, you're saying pass the salt. So that it gets, it gets to the point where it's becoming so rope. It's like going banana, 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 banana. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you have to keep reminding yourself 
that you want the salt, that you're not just putting those words in your mouth, but that there's a reason why you're saying that. And the reason is, is that your food doesn't taste good or, you know, whatever. So with songs, you know, if you, if you sing a song in front of people, if I sing a song in front of people multiple, multiple times, and I start thinking too much about technique, uh, whether, you know, I'm in tune or whatever, and I forget what the song is about, and I forget what, what I was thinking when I wrote the song or have, have completely lost any kind of emotional connection to the lyrics, I think the singing usually kind of goes south. Mm. So a lot of times I try to reconnect myself to, to that song, and that'll kind of put me back on track. A hundred times in one day? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Easy. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, people are really shocked, I think, when they come to a movie set, how incredibly dull it is and how you have to, you know, just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Listen, it's the same thing in a studio, right? I mean, yeah. uh, that, the, a, a studio experience as a, um, as a player, once in a while you do something in the studio where you're like, hey, we all played out. Take two. It was great. Keep it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of times... It's, you know, it's a little bit more painstaking than that. You know, you hear about people that sang, you know, did whatever producers who have asked people to do, you know, 100 vocals and, you know, so. Yeah, it's, that's incredible because as a musician and as a writer, the thing that you always want is a hit song. And what happens if you get a hit song? You're going to have to play it every night. And then for some bands, it's like a curse. I, I went and saw Paul McCartney and he did like a three hour show and there was still like 10 songs I wanted to hear that I didn't hear. But when you have hit songs, you're just going to have to play them and you're going to have to find some way to do that. And when I think about, yeah, like what you're saying, just to bring up one of your performances, I was thinking back to... I stirred the tanks. <laughs> There's so much emotion in that Apollo 13 scene where it's like, oh my gosh, that is such a tense moment. And there is so much on the line and there is so much personal investment in that line. And there's so much tension and it's, it's portrayed in a way that is so real and so raw. It portraying that sort of thing in music night after night, when an audience might not be giving you the response that you want or when, you know, the crowd last night was going bonkers over this. I think there is something to that, that there is a real mental uh, gymnastics that we have to put ourselves through to, to remember exactly why we are doing what we're doing. Absolutely. Okay, my last question for you guys is regarding family in a creative endeavor. It's sometimes difficult, sometimes easier. Business with family is sometimes easy, sometimes difficult. You guys are doing both. You're, you're in a creative and business endeavor. How have you guys managed to keep it together business-wise, creativity-wise, as family members? Well, I'll start with that. I think in terms of the business side, uh, being a family member is a huge advantage because there's trust. Yes. And that's where families do. They trust each other. So um, in that sense, and the if, if you have really good business partners the way we do our management agency I mean, just phenomenal phenomenal people that just make everything look easy and and you know 25 years of fine-tuning our our business which it is just like we had a dry cleaners yeah as far as the the family in a band uh, i think that um a lot of bad raps go to particularly brother bands just because there have been so many failure brother bands and these awful stories but those tend to be 
um, brothers that started in the band then got to be wildly successful and all this money started getting thrown around and celebrity about the band and who was, who was getting more press and all that kind of stuff. We never have that. We've we've never had that. We never had the opportunity to, to um, get mad at each other after we had our, our sixth number one single. So um, maybe someday we'll get, we'll get an opportunity to really fight it out when our, you know, when our, our third single goes number one, but um, seriously, you brought that up a little bit about that bitterness and, there is something really great about the fact that we can have this band and we can go out and people will come, not tons of people. We, you know, we have a, a small but mighty following and we can play and nobody's going to be disappointed if we didn't play our single from 1992 because sure. we don't have that. Same. Well, I, you're, you're bringing up your tunes and your number one singles, which I really hope you do. And uh, I hope you don't get to the point where you're like the Gallagher brothers in Oasis where you just can't even get a digital meeting with the both of you. <laughs> you guys have a new record out or coming out. You have a new single coming out. Why don't you, as we're closing up here, tell us about what you guys have coming up, where people can expect to hopefully see you in person someday. Where can people find your music and find out more about what you guys are doing? Well, uh, see us in person is a, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, I think everyone is wondering that. We did have some dates booked, which obviously got um, pushed or or canceled. In terms of like things that we have coming out, we're working on a um, a video right now for uh, the new song. New song is um, I called the Corona tune. I, I wrote it in uh, in you know lockdown and produced it in lockdown. Sent it to Mike. He put some gorgeous uh, cello on it and then was sitting around the house and and I kind of came up with a, a video concept and my my wife was my camera operator and uh, and and then I asked Michael to do the same thing in his lockdown um, so I just got some footage from him and uh, we'll probably have that cut I don't know I'm not sure about when the video is going to be done uh, but we're working on it now but I think the song is coming did you say next week this song coming out Mike I guess the song's coming out next week I think it's the 16th yep great we'll be on the lookout for that yeah and um and yeah so other than that I don't know that's that's uh, that plus the record and uh we're really 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 uh happy with it it's um 10 tunes two of them are live and uh we, you know, I've, I've had a chance to listen, listen down to it a couple of times. And, and, uh, I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's good. I'm, I'm, I just, I think it's a very, very cool sounding record. It's, it is like, as usual for, for our stuff, it's a little bit all over the place sonically, you know, it doesn't just stay in one type of music, you know, it kind of goes doing, 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 <laughs> even sure. within the course of, of individual songs. But I think that, I think there's probably at least one song on there that uh, people will get a kick out of. And it's, it's kind of a more, it's, it's a pretty feel good record. So uh, I think that might be a good idea. I love that. I have, for, for those listening, I did have a chance to listen to most of this record, and I dig it. I'm sure you guys are going to as well. So check out the Bacon Brothers. They're online. 
they're on they got a website they got an instagram they got a youtube check them out check out their dates in the event that uh, we start playing live music again go check them out go see what they're doing all right thank you guys so much for being with us we really appreciate it thanks fellas thanks Murray. all the best all right kevin bacon michael bacon ledge status I'm talking the kind of ledge where you need your buddy to lock their fingers together and like put them down and then you put the one foot in their hands and they kind of hoist you up and you're leaning against the wall because you need to reach super high and you can't even jump that high ledge status. Okay? These cats are operating on a great level and just the depth of their work. After I did this interview, I did a little more digging. It's insane the amount of work these cats have done. Check them out. Thanks for scoping Wong Notes Podcast. Hey, guitar players. I told you before, I got to plug in out the archetype Corey Wong with Neural DSP. You want clean tone? I got you. Check it out. Peace.